welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Today, I'm with Allison Coward, founder of Bracket, where she helps organizations build highly collaborative cultures and highly performing teams. Welcome to the show, Allison. Thanks, Douglas. So, Allison, tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you get started in this work? It is a bit of a journey, actually. So I didn't fall into workshop facilitation because I intended to. Actually, the angle that I came at it was because I was so passionate about collaboration. And I'd actually done an MA, which was related to my previous career in the creative industries, did lots of research about how the creative industries could flourish and came across this idea of collaboration. Um, And actually the first iteration of Bracket when I set it up 10 years ago was a virtual agency that brought freelancers together into teams um, to deliver collaborative projects for clients. And at the start of each of those projects, because each of these freelancers never worked together before, it made sense and it was really logical for me to get everyone together to meet each other, but then also to have, I guess, a brainstorming session where we'd talk about what we were going to do for the client and how we were going to work together. And because I wasn't a creative producer myself, I was the person that kind of convened everyone. I was the facilitator, but I didn't know I was doing that at the time. And actually, that's what people picked up on. They were asking me to facilitate their workshop. So rather than me bringing together teams, they were saying, can you come in and work with our teams to do what you're doing with those teams? Um, Because we need that as well. It just kind of went from there, really. I kind of realized what workshop facilitation was, started to do more of it um, and wrote a book, A Pocket Guide to Effective Workshops. And then over the last couple of years, I've kind of brought it back full circle. I'd say over the last kind of three to four years, brought it back full circle to the original core of the idea, which was around collaboration. So um, whereas the workshops I, I, I ran previously were, you know, there were innovation workshops, maybe brainstorming workshops or strategy sessions. Now, a lot of the workshops that I facilitate are very much about um, how teams can gel and form and create new ways of working together. Yeah, I wrote the the word forming down. As you mentioned, gel and form, form and gel and work together. It makes me even more curious because I've always found that model of kind of forming, norming, storming to be kind of interesting, like these maturity curve that a team team goes on. And so what, what did you find when you were assembling these kind of creative groups to um, and facilitating them um, as far as patterns and and uh i don't know maybe norms that work that you could lean on in this forming stage or when you're starting to get them to gel that's a really brilliant question because first of all what i found was the workshop format was actually perfect for a creative team and I don't think I'd really made that connection before. The thing is, is when you're facilitating a workshop as a facilitator, you're not there to contribute content and you're not there to tell people what to do. You're there to create a space where all of the ideas can come to the forefront. And I think, I, you know, I, I instinctively knew that, but I hadn't realized it so clearly. So, you know, because I wasn't a creative producer, it was my job 
for everybody to come together and create the best platform for this team to do their best work as people that had never met before, but people that were experts in everything that they did. So that, I think that was the, the first thing was that, you know, as a facilitator, your role is very objective and you've got a specific role, which is about process. Like what, is, what do you need to do to get these people communicating, getting to know each other, being able to contribute ideas and speak up and also make the space for that constructive conflict that is so important in innovation as well. So I'd say that's that's one of the things, particularly in terms of the forming stage. I mean, there was some stuff that came before that in terms of kind of understanding the brief and then matching skills to the brief and then kind of having a little bit of a background knowledge about the characters and kind of matching it that way. Um, but really the, the work started in the room or just before the room when I would sort of plan that workshop out and figure out, right, you know, I need to get these people kind of working in the best way possible. How can I make that happen? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think that uh, you mentioned it's important to understand the brief. And I, I feel like that's where so many people focus, you know, it's like making sure we're aligning on the what exactly needs to be done versus the best way for us to come together and work together, understand each other and do our best work. A hundred percent. I mean, that's the work that needs to be done before you even really start talking about the ideas or, you know, maybe d- done in tandem. But you're right that the emphasis is on the content and not on the how. I mean, it's one of my favourite phrases, which is like how you work together has more of an impact on the success of a team than, um, you know, what they're working on and even who's in the team. And I use lots of research to back that up. But it's, it's, it's so important, you know, and I think the emphasis for me was that, one, these people were specialists. I'd like brought them into the room for a specific reason. And they were cross-disciplinary as well, multidisciplinary teams. Secondly, they'd never met before and they were going to be working on a high value client project together um, so it's not that there wasn't room for mistakes but we had to kind of get together and start working together very quickly we didn't really have the luxury of years of getting to know each other we had to kind of get together know each other and start working together all in the same day so it was very much emphasis on the kind of the forming the forming part yeah you know it's, it's interesting you mentioned this situation where we don't have years to get to know each other we have to assemble and move pretty quickly and i would hazard to guess that we'll see more of that in the future as the different models emerge for you know finding work and doing work and to me the the future work is about more kind of open talent yeah and temporary teams as well i mean i think Mm sort of the challenges that we're facing and the problems that we want to solve and how we want to innovate, we're going to need to bring different skill sets together. And that means that it's going to be teams that are made up of people that have never worked together before because we're going to need to bring skills together in new ways. It's almost like different jigsaw puzzles or different recipes, if you like, you know, the raw ingredients, but mixing them up in different ways and you get a different a different result. So we're going to have to get much more used to working with people that we don't know and therefore understanding what it takes to get a team up and running um, quickly, which, like you say, it's, it's less to do with the content and more to do with the, the process of how you need to get better at having those kinds of conversations. Yeah, to me, the word trust comes to mind. How do we get to that, that point of, of trust quickly and I'm curious if 
what your kind of go-to strategies or what you found to work to kind of really kickstart some of that? Yeah, well, there's, there's a few things. I mean, um, I always talk about the, the value of a check-in um, mm. at the start of a meeting and finding a question that everyone can respond to, which not only kind of creates a moment for people to kind of focus and say, right, we're going to, we're, we're in the room together and we need to give our attention, but also an opportunity for people to get to know each other. The book, The Checklist Manifesto by Atoll Gwande, he did a lot of research in hospitals and he found that the teams that were going into surgery, the doctors and nurses and anaesthetists that introduced themselves at the beginning of a surgery before they started operating were more likely to have a successful surgery um, because the fact that they spoke up at the beginning and got to know each other, got to know each other's names, meant they were more likely to speak up later on during the surgery if they saw something going wrong. There's a real power in that kind of pause at the beginning of a, of a session. And I don't mean those kind of, those introductions where you go around the room. I mean, I think like, I find those kind of quite um, daunting, actually, when I've kind of in a room of people that I don't know and I've, I'm under pressure to introduce myself in a really effective way. But finding um, like an interesting question um, that you can talk around. I mean, I think the other thing as well, um, which goes back to so- social psychology, is like finding ways that people can find things in common with each other, whether mm. it's, you know, two brothers or they've got um you know their parents grew up in the same town or their birthdays are in the same month even things like that can start to help to build that connection which will then lead to lead to trust so as a facilitator again it's about finding those those questions and I I don't really like to call them icebreakers all the time I know that there's value in icebreakers but I feel that this is really part of the work it's not just something that's breaking the ice it's something that's kind of really helping people to get together and to, to focus on the work. And there's so much out there, isn't there? So many questions that, you know, we can pick up on. People have created kits for, for questions that you can ask at the start of a meeting. So I don't think we're short on those kinds of questions, but I think that the fact is we need to design something at the beginning to open up those kinds of conversations. I think you're so spot on. You know, if we can tie it to our purpose and have it align and there's a broader intent or reason why we're doing that work, then icebreakers and whatever you want to call it, they, they have value. But if we yeah. just kind of throw them in because, oh, we always do this, then, right. then you know, it's, uh, we're just kind of going through the motions. And I really would love to talk a little bit about, you know, I was thinking about this, I had written down the word team charter. And I was, I was thinking also about Patrick Lencioni's organizational health and is so important versus, you know, operational excellence. And so, I'm curious to just hear your your thoughts on this notion of the team really kind of coming together and kind of defining who they are as an objective. Absolutely love it. Yeah. It's one of the key principles that I have is that in order for a team to identify how they're going to work, how everyone's going to do their best work, right? They have to sit down and really explore, first of all, who's on the team and what each individual is bringing to the team, as well as each of those individuals, how they work and how they do their best work. They also need to consider, therefore, what everybody looks like, what that looks like as a team when you bring all of those people together, because that's going to be unique. Because if we're working in these kind of, you know, these temporary teams and each team is going to be made up of 
different types of people, which means that each team is going to be different as well. Then you need to think about the, the, you know, what is it that you're actually working on? Some projects are more fast paced than others. Some are more pressurized than others that require more creativity and in innovation than others like really understand what it is that you need to do together and then also understand the context that you're working within as well and whether that's going to influence the way that you work together and then once you've got all of that once you've kind of discussed that as a team and understood it that's when you can you're in the in the position to really start designing okay so this is the situation that we're in how are we going to do our best work how can we you know create as I say create the environment for us all to individually do our best work within the way that it, we can, acknowledging that we're going to need to make some compromises. And therefore, and what does that mean as a team for us doing our best work as well? So I actually love the idea of a team charter and particularly the idea of getting to know everybody's working styles so that there's that, there's that shared empathy across the team as well. Yeah, it reminds me of this um, technique where where managers will write a manual, yeah, on how to understand them and you know give it to their to their employees or their direct reports. And you know, I think that being able to do that as a team and get to a high level understanding can be really powerful. There's a technique I always love to use as a manager if I had two employees that were you know struggling. Um, most of the time, it came down to a lack of understanding about role and perspective and you know, capability, skill set, unless there was something pathological going on, <laughs> I would uh, just ask them to go to coffee and tell them, you can't talk about work. I don't want you to talk about your tasks or what's going on. I just want you to take turns telling each other what the other person does from a role. Yeah. Describe the other person's role in your words and, um, and just listen to each other. And once you're done sharing back and forth, then discuss that. It's like 99 times out of 100, they come back and they're like, ah, you know, I had no idea. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I love that. The other tool that I've used as well, and this is particularly across teams, actually, that have conflict, like, you know, maybe a marketing or a sales team, or I've done it with a research department in a university, their relationship with the academics that they work with. I use the empathy map, which is like a really great way to kind of sit down, you know, use the empathy map, usually with your, like your, your potential customers or like clients of your service, but using the empathy map with people that you work with, again, really trying to dig in deep and really see things from, from their point of view, again, can kind of help to, to smooth some of those conflicts over. Yeah, that's great. It reminded me of how awesome it is when organizations and consultants are using design thinking tools to point them inward and mm. start thinking employee experience versus uh, customer experience. Douglas, you're talking about all the stuff that I love like talking about and writing about. I mean, I, I literally just wrote a post about design thinking and using design thinking as a way to build resilient teams. And again, one of the sort of main things that I talk about a lot is that we've got all of these innovation tools which help us to create amazing products and services and innovate in those areas. If we turn them inwards into our team, then actually we can innovate the way that we work as well. Most teams, like if you think about UX or products, they're used to using these tools. They're kind of, you know, second nature to them, but often they haven't thought about just flipping them internally and using them to really create new ways of working together. And they can be really powerful when used in that way. Absolutely. One of my favorites, we were talking about starting meetings earlier. One of my favorites is starting with hopes and fears. 
because, you know, you talk about feeling strongly about something. I mean, this is your career. You spend more time with these people than you'd sometimes do with family because, you know, frankly, there's like, you know, eight hours of your waking day. It's like at the office or, or at home logged into a, a virtual session. And so there can be a lot of emotional baggage tied up in teams and things. And so just allowing, giving people space to express those things can be really powerful. A hundred percent. And, you know, this is, I think that's the key, right? We spend so much of our time at work. We often, I don't know if it's people don't have the awareness or feel that they have the permission to make work better. And, you know, one of the thoughts is that if you make work better, because we spend so much time at work and, you know, particularly in the, the area that we work in, a lot of our work is done with teams. If we spend the time making teamwork better, it will change the experience that we have of work. And because we spend so much time at work, it's kind of going to change the experience that we have overall of our lives, right? Because if we're spending so much time at work and if we don't like our jobs, then actually that has an impact on how we feel generally. If we love our work, we feel that we're able to go and express ourselves and we have the opportunity to thrive, do our best work, have amazing conversations with our colleagues, which, like you know, push us and challenge us and enable us to grow, then that's going to have a knock-on effect in our lives outside of work as well. And that's one of the things that really gets me going. I actually did a bit of an interview earlier and one of the questions was, what's your biggest delusion? And my delusion is, is that one day everybody goes to work or looks forward to going to work and has brilliant days every single day. And I know that's kind of like a utopia, but that is, you know, that's my biggest delusion. You know, I think that's really beautiful. And I was just coaching someone recently on leadership and they had not that long ago been promoted. Um, They were a software developer and they're kind of on the track to become VP of engineering at their startup. And the thing that I noticed this trend was they were from a background of just like big company kind of corporate gigs where the hobby or the pastime is to sit back and just complain about all the things that are wrong. That's just all the, all the things about work and all the things the boss did and someone else did and blah, blah, blah. And that stuff's addictive. That mindset, Mm. that, that behavior, that pastime is super addictive. And I'm big fan of positive deviance as a workshop technique and and it can be a wave of life too, if we just reflect yeah. on what's working rather than what's not working. But as, especially as engineers, it can be really difficult or really easy, I would say, to, to fall into that trap. And I'm trained and, and lifelong engineer, software developer. And, you know, we've spent our entire career building our abilities to figure out what could go wrong and a plan against it. And then, you know, find the bugs and fix them. And, we have to be able to turn that off and look at the positive sometime because if we're always looking at what won't work, then we'll, we'll never see the beauty that we might be able to pursue. Mm, yeah. And I even like what you said about, you know, looking at finding the bugs and fixing it. You can even kind of put a, a positive spin on that. If we look at that, uh, you know, as work, like what's not working in work and kind of think, right, we want to problem solve around the things that aren't working to make it better. That's a kind of really good way of looking at it as well, sort of a positive spin. But I do agree that, you know, it's, it's, it feels quite addictive and it almost feels like 
there's a kind of element of that's what work's meant to be. We're not meant to enjoy work. We're meant to moan about work. We're meant to moan about our colleagues. But what if we weren't? You know, what if work was meant to be this place where you go to, where you are fulfilled? It enables you to sort of not in a, I guess, in a controlled way, but it enables you to be a better human. It may, enables you to kind of search for what it is that you want to do and kind of grow and develop and explore and become a better communicator. So that therefore you can contribute in better ways to your family, to your community, to society. I'd love for companies to see themselves as having that role. Can you imagine if companies, you know, alongside, you know, obviously companies have to, they have to make a profit and they have to survive, otherwise they can't employ people. But when they do kind of get to that stage, it's like, you know, what if we saw ourselves as a place where people come to thrive and because Mm. we see the impact that that's going to have on society? That's beautiful. I love it. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and come back. It's uh, something I was thinking about when we were talking about the forming and just understanding each other and, you know, some of the things that are required to build trust. And it struck me, and this is something that we've been doing in some of our workshops. I've found great results with it. And I'm sure sure it's found your way into your work where usually when people get along or there's disagreements or they're disgruntled by someone, it's because they of a weakness of their teammates, right? It's the behavior that their teammate or someone on the team's exhibiting is hurtful or doesn't connect in some way and it upsets someone. And usually I've found that the those behaviors are the exact opposite manifestation of a strength. So That's for instance, let's take one example, which is I'm an achiever. So I get a lot of stuff done. So then my expectations on others can be quite high. Unless I check my uh, check myself and say, you know, not everyone is going to be functioning on this achiever level as me. And even when I keep take that into account, it can potentially still come off as overwhelming to others. And it's one thing for me to carry that burden and do my best to like take care of others. But if we talk about all of this as a team, now everyone else can understand that, oh, I don't need to interpret this as a attack on me yeah that's just douglas being an achiever and that's great for the team yeah <laughs> yeah so, absolutely yeah i've got a sort of a bit of a, a, a love hate relationship with personality tests well, i'm kind of addicted to them because i love doing them for myself but sure. then i know that they have their limits in the fact yes. that i think that they're a good entry point into self-awareness and what happens i remember when i did my first one which i think was Myers-Briggs years ago and it was kind of like mind-blowing for me because you know when you sometimes read these kind of assessments you're like how how did they get that so right but what it did for me was as well as kind of creating that self-awareness with Myers-Briggs for example you've got those 15 other personality types and you're like oh right that person the reason that person and I clash all the time is because they're on the opposite end of the scale. So they just see things in a different perspective from me. So that actually, that's the most kind of powerful outcome of a personality test, I think. Second to the the, the initial bit of self-awareness is the awareness that other people see things and work in different ways. Mm -hmm. And the more that you can understand that, the more that, you know, you can benefit from collaboration because, in a collaborative team, you don't want people that all work in the same way. And that's the whole point of collaborating, right? That you get different perspectives. But the nature of having those different perspectives 
may cause conflict if people haven't taken the time to get to know each other and understand how people see things and therefore how valuable that is to have those different perspectives. It also comes back to the debate around diversity at the moment, which is, you know, the value, not only from a moral standpoint, that people, that teams should be diverse because we are globally diverse, but at the same time, the opportunities that come from inviting or including people into a conversation that have different perspectives and being able to hold those types of conversations. And we've seen, you know, that it's pretty challenging, um, but it's something that we have to learn to do, not only because we want to make the world better, but also it just, you know, makes better workplaces. So when we talk about working together and how we're going to do that, We've spoken a lot about the soft skills and the understanding around coming together and understanding how we're going to work together. I think there's also some very, I would say, more hard skills that go into how we're going to work together. You know, even deciding, are we going to use Google Docs and do some real-time collaboration? Or are we going to, uh, what tools are we going to use? When are we going to meet? When does it make sense to have certain types of meetings? And I think that that causes a lot of strain on teams when they don't have those conversations and they take it for granted or they let things evolve organically versus having some upfront conversations around what's the best way for us to, to share these things and you know, what is our iteration cadence, et cetera. Mm. So here's the thing, right? Is that this can be seen as a design process. Mm. You can create and design the way that you work together as a team. And, you know, all those kind of factors that I mentioned before, the individuals on the team, the project that you're working on, the context that you're working within. What do you need to design to enable you to reach the outcomes that you set for yourself? And that might be looking specifically at how you meet, when you meet, what types of meetings you're going to have, what tools you're going to use and how you're going to, not even just what tools you're going to use, but how you're going to use those tools. We're going to use Slack for this and we're going to use Google Docs for this. The other thing is what kinds of mechanisms and perhaps rituals can you put in place to foster that communication and the connection and trust? We've seen this a lot with remote teams We've seen that a lot in the remote teams in the fact that, you know, people aren't in the office as much and they've really been missing that connection. And it's not that you can necessarily replicate those water cooler moments in the office, but there is something that you can create to try and ensure that you're checking in with your colleagues, for example, or you are having those kind of social chats and being really intentional about how you work together and then thinking, this is all a behaviour change piece. So not only do we want to collaborate better and therefore that means we need to have this meeting then and that meeting then, but actually really being specific about how and when you're going to start to develop these behaviours and make them habits. Mm. I love this notion of developing behaviours and making them habits. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is it. You know, if we want to work differently, then we're going to be changing the way that we work and actually... You know, we know that as humans, we find change quite difficult to do it off of our own backs rather than when change is done to us. Like, you know, we've seen in, in the recent situation, we've, we've had to change quite quickly. When we're, we're trying to be proactive about change, then we have to be a lot more, I guess, disciplined with ourselves about how it's going to take place. So it's not just the conversations with your team of saying, you know, we want to be a good collaborative team. It is saying, well, what does collaboration look like to us? Um, like what do we mean by collaboration? And on a practical level, like what actions 
do we take in order to make that happen? And then when are we going to do those actions? And, you know, what does it look like? You know, how do we know that it's working? And making sure that you're having those kind of regular conversations as a team to review how you're working and what you need to improve and what you need to iterate on. Yeah. And speaking of change, if you could change anything about most meetings, what would it be? Mm. when I say sort of most meetings, I'm talking about the team meetings that are kind of big parts of projects because, you know, the getting to know you meetings are, are slightly mm. different and presentation meetings. But I would say that um, I would love teams to look at those kinds of meetings and approach them as if they were workshops. Mm. Um, so that means like taking each of those meetings and thinking, right, okay, what is the purpose? What is the outcome? What are the things that we need to discuss and what are the best ways to discuss those different points um, and how can we make it engaging and how can we make sure that everybody gets the chance to, to have a say. Um, so that, I think that's one of the things that I would like to see change in meetings is like how can we make some of our meetings more workshop-like because that's what we need. You know, if you want collaborative discussions, that's exactly what a workshop achieves. Yeah, we're going to increase participation that way for sure. Right. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, it's like, can we, can we unleash everyone? I think so many meetings provide too many opportunities for social loafing. Mm. And for people to dominate as well, the conversation. Um, and that's the, the, the special role of a facilitator is that they are there to keep an eye on those things and make sure that the conversation is inclusive, kind of draw out the things that aren't being said and the people that aren't speaking and understand why they're not speaking yeah how have you noticed some of those dynamics change now that we're in the the virtual space so much more often again unless people are being intentional about it then it do, it doesn't change i think that was one of the big mistakes that happened is that everyone got very excited by having these online virtual meetings because we had zoom and we've got slack and those kinds of things but they didn't think you know if meetings are terrible face-to-face anyway, then they're not automatically going to be amazing because they're virtual. You've still got to apply the same principles of kind of planning those meetings and making them better. Um, I think it's the same conversation that we have around collaboration. You know, just by putting great people in the room doesn't mean that they're automatically going to work well together. It can happen, but actually if you want to increase the chances of success and you've got to be intentional about it and it's the same with our, our, our online meetings so where people were feeling perhaps that they weren't able to contribute in online meetings in fact it's been accentuated sorry where they weren't able to contribute in face-to-face meetings it's been accentuated in online meetings and um, all of the kind of cracks in cultures in meeting cultures in team cultures have just been highlighted and enhanced even more in a situation where we have to work remotely Mm. and I do believe that a lot of this stuff I mean I'm I know I'm biased but I think what I learned from facilitating workshops was really transformational for me I said that I started off my career but I was working with creatives I was working with freelance creatives these are people that worked for themselves they were their own boss and they were specialists so I knew as somebody who didn't have any knowledge about how they did their their work and how they got their results. But there was just no point in me telling them what to do. I didn't want to tell them what to do. That's the whole point I got them there because I wanted to kind of draw on their expertise. Now we're finding ourselves in a situation where the workplace looks a little bit more like that. We are bringing together multidisciplinary teams. People are specialists. 
in their own areas. And the way that we've managed in the past through or the traditional idea of the manager, i.e. telling people what to do and making decisions, mm. won't work in an environment where we want innovation. And what I learned from facilitating workshops was transformational because for me, a workshop is like a the exact same feeling and environment that you need to lead a creative team through uncertainty. It's exactly what a facilitator does. So it's almost like how do leaders take on some of those principles of facilitation and apply them to how they work with their teams? Because that's kind of what we need. We need to kind of make that shift from the kind of, you know, the tell and sell manager to a manager or a leader that is more facilitative and creates the space for people to do to do their work and enables those conversations. You know, I recently had Linda Baker on the podcast and she loves to share this definition of facilitation to be, to make ease. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by this definition and, and, Mm. and especially as it relates to what you were just talking about around, you know, how can leaders improve their teams by adopting these skills and this, this way of working and and tying back to your point around can we help teams and and employees and workers enjoy their work more and not feel like they're dreading work and if management is less about like well leadership is less about managing and having you under their thumb and more about how can i make this easy <laughs> mm. like that seems like it would bring a, a, about more delight Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you know what that, um, I talk about this all the time. If anyone's heard me speak at events and you'll know that I talk about this all the time, but it just made me think about Teresa Amabile's book, The Progress Principle, where she identified that the thing that knowledge workers want more than anything, or the, the, the thing that ignites most joy in people's work is that they've made progress every mm-hmm. single day. And it therefore changes the way that we look at managers. Like managers are there to clear the path to make that progress easy, which goes back to um, Linda Baker's definition of facilitation. Mm. You know, it also reminds me of, I think Gallup did a, a study and came up with these 12 questions that were the critical questions that you could ask of employees to kind of rate their satisfaction. They kind of present it a little more like negatively in the sense that like, if they say if they answer no to more than one or two of these questions, then they're probably likely to leave. I always found it to be really powerful questions to pepper in on one on ones and stuff, but I, I've never used them in workshops. So, and I just jotted it down because so I think it, I think it could be interesting to start mm. kind of uh, bringing those in and thinking about could they be almost design principles? So right. instead of using them as a reactive measure we actually use them as a standard to like, well, how do we design situations that ensure we're all yeses on all these questions? Yes. Yeah. yeah One of them was, do you feel that you're doing your best work? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. If you're kind of looking at that from a design point of view, again, it comes back to that self-reflection. It's like, how can you, how can you ensure that you're doing your best work or what do you need to be able to do your best mm-hmm. work? Yeah. And are we making sure we're putting people in the right um, on the right teams? Like if we're reteaming, reassembling, and looking at projects, like who should be on the projects could be highly informed by the fact of well, where could Susan be doing her best work? And mm. um, 
uh, not necessarily what's most convenient for me as a leader or yeah. for, you know, for whatever reasons, like, you know, we can kind of consider some of these things when we're, we're allocating resources. Mm. And that's what makes me think that that's what work should be about, right? Because you're just, you're going to get um, not only engaged employees, but if you kind of bring someone in um, that is able to, kind of do their best work on whatever project that they're doing, then that's going to benefit the company in the long run, obviously, because you've just got all these people that are just doing amazing work um, wherever you put them. So I want to wrap up with one question, which is if you're thinking about a leader who's just started to hear some of these things and, you know, they're curious about how facilitation could play a role and, the future of their organization, or it could even be a um, someone in the trenches that just wants to be a facilitator. What's mm-hmm. what's your biggest advice as far as how to start to gain the benefits of facilitation and start to practice some of the stuff? I would say, don't feel that you have to only practice facilitation in a workshop setting. There are skills in facilitation, which is, I guess, what I'm you know I've been saying throughout our chat is that the skills of things like asking great questions and listening, I mean, they're very aligned to coaching actually. But actually, if you start with those two, like for a week, every conversation that you have with one of your team, just ask questions and listen and see how that changes and shifts the dynamic. That's a key skill that a facilitator will have to use in sessions anyway, asking questions and listening to those responses. And that's what, again, what makes facilitation really powerful because people are being listened to. So I'd say sort of, you know, try and extract some of those skills. Definitely look at how you can run your meetings to be more facilitated as well. So some of the kind of classic ways of designing workshops and facilitation skills. But I would say also look at the opportunities outside of those workshop settings for using facilitation skills where you can apply them. I love that. You know, people can go to all the training they want. And I've, I've taught to countless facilitators who've gotten lots of training and even, you know, multiple levels and are still kind of daunted when they're asked to plan a meeting with the CEO mm. and are asking for advice of what do I do? And I think you're right. Practice matters so much and you don't have to wait for the meeting, the big event, the big workshop to your point earlier the best way to improve meetings is to make them feel more facilitated, make them feel more like a uh, workshop. So start practicing the stuff on everyday meetings where the, yeah. the stakes are a little lower. And quite frankly, the stakes are higher than you might realize because doing that's going to unleash so much value as you previously mentioned. Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. Well, this has been such a pleasure chatting with you today. How can the listeners, uh, how can they find you? You can find me on LinkedIn, um, Alison Coward on LinkedIn. Uh, you can also find me at my website, which is bracketcreative.co.uk. And my email address is Alison App, so feel free to get, get in contact with me. Excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Alison. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com.